Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void. And darkness was upon the face of the deep. As Apollo finally starts to take wing, it's a bit shocking to learn that the entire program and everything it accomplished really was the world's most spectacular Plan B. In part three of what we saw, we'll see how the simple, straight path to the moon was too complex, too expensive, and too heavy. Instead, an intricate ballet of rendezvous, docking, transfers, and all the rest ended up being the path that we finally chose to the moon. This Plan B approach required vastly more skill than what we originally thought we would need for Apollo, but we ended up going down that road anyway, since when you get right down to it, skill doesn't weigh anything. From a fire during a routine test to Christmas messages from the far side of the moon, watch how the Apollo program got to that one giant leap with a series of very small steps. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Up on Tranquility Base, Armstrong and Aldrin started to prepare their backpacks and equipment for the moment when they would depressurize the LEM, open the small hatch down around knee level between their two positions, and then crawl backwards, blind, onto the surface of the moon. Now, this would end up taking much longer than expected, three and a half hours instead of two. Now, sure, they'd rehearsed this process dozens of times in the LEM mock-up back on Earth. There... Suit preparation began with all of the gear neatly laid out, but in one of the very few training oversights that NASA committed, they had failed to account for what they assumed would be minor items such as food and water packages, checklists, and all the other tools that had filled Eagle to the absolute limit and made what was supposed to be two hours of cramped, difficult motions into something considerably worse. I'm uh, at the foot of the ladder. As they prepared for the EVA, that's the extravehicular activity, the nearest humans were 238,900 miles away, with one exception. Mike Collins, the Enigma, the third person on what's so often described as a two-man accomplishment, was orbiting a mere 70 miles overhead in the command module Columbia. You know, it's one of the greatest ironies of the entire space race. 
that the one man who was physically closest to Armstrong and Aldrin as they stepped down the ladder was about the only person in the civilized world who was not able to watch it on TV. I guess you're about the only person around that doesn't have TV coverage of the scene. That's all right, I don't mind a bit. When you get right down to it, why was Mike Collins even there? Why would he and Dick Gordon, Stu Rusa, Al Warden, Ken Mattingly, and Ron Evans, the command module pilots on the remaining Apollo landings, why would they be able or even be required to lay claim to the title of the loneliest man in the world, spending half an orbit over the Earthside landing sites and the other half over the far side of the moon? Michael Collins, what he expects to be doing up in that command module? Well, primarily just tending the store, Mr. Clark. Well, Mike uh, Collins was there because the law said he had to be there. And that would, of course, be the merciless law of mass and gravity. Not because the numbers added up for him to be there, but rather because they didn't. That third man in lunar orbit was there because the entire Apollo program as flown was, in fact, the world's most magnificent Plan B. Now, to understand what I mean by this, we have to first visualize the massive booster that was envisioned to get the Apollo astronauts to the moon. So just close your eyes for a moment and just think about this beast. Eight of the massive F-1 first stage engines providing 14 million pounds of thrust at liftoff. A monster of a booster, 50 feet wide around the waist, almost 400 feet tall capable of hurling a one-piece, 50-ton spacecraft to the surface of the moon and have enough fuel to get it back again. That magnificent three-stage rocket, that gleaming pillar of fuel, hope, skill, and technology, that unsurpassed miracle of engineering, would be known as the mighty and legendary C-8 Nova. And the C-8 Nova would never be built. Because building that one rocket and that 50-ton, one-piece moon vehicle was simply against the law. Now, anyone who's ever seen a Saturn V launch in the flesh at Cape Kennedy, and I'm one of those people, remembers that brilliant flare of the rocket engines and the little white needle kind of rising slowly into the sky in utter silence, kind of clearing the pad before the sound had time to travel the 20 miles needed to come and hit us in the chest. You didn't hear a Saturn V so much as you felt it. And anyone who's been there in person, or the far greater number of people who've seen those slow motion videos of those main engines spewing fire and smoke, the rapidly accelerating upward motion as the words United States scrolls by in red letters, anyone contemplating the sheer magnificence of a Saturn V launch ought to stop for a moment to remember that that was the little brother of the half-again wider Nova that was originally planned to take Apollo and that single huge one-stage lander to the moon. That meant, as originally envisioned, Neil Armstrong, or whoever that first person would be, would not climb down to the surface on a ladder with 10 individual rungs, but rather one with 60. This brute force approach to landing on the moon was called direct ascent. The single-piece direct ascent plan required no rendezvous, no docking, no eagle, no Mike Collins, no problem. Only we couldn't get there from here. Now, in aviation, keeping the weight of an aircraft to a minimum is critical. When preparing for his transatlantic solo flight back in 1927, pilot Charles Lindbergh was so obsessed with saving weight that he cut the thin white borders off of his paper charts. 
But when you're dealing with a rocket, which is trying to lift a payload straight up into the sky without the use of aerodynamic lift that's provided by an airplane's wings, then there's only one simple law, and that law is weight is everything. Revolutionary aerospace designer Bert Rutan, who would later build his own suborbital spacecraft just for kicks, proposed the following test of the weight of each component added to the spacecraft. Take the piece of hardware in question, throw it into the air, and if it comes back down again, then it's too heavy. Now, there were many pathways to the moon, several different combinations of launches, dockings, crews, and modules, from the Nova-powered Cadillac of a single-stage lander to the Ford Pinto version of a tiny Jiminy capsule and a one-man lander. How did we end up with the configuration that actually flew? Well, the first thing to go was the Nova rocket itself. It was just too big, too heavy, too complex, and even for Apollo, too expensive. Could you still do direct ascent, that is, one single vehicle for the entire trip without the Nova? Well, technically, you could. Using Nova's little brother, the Saturn V, you could pull it off if you assembled everything in orbit, requiring an estimated 15 Saturn V launches just for that one mission. Gone was that 50-ton Cadillac that some people worried would sink into the lunar dust under its own weight. What eventually replaced it would be far more complex, far more difficult, and would require far more skill to achieve. The command module is a very complex vehicle, and uh, just to do nothing inside it requires a, a good deal of switch throwing and a certain amount of attention. So when you get right down to it, Mike Collins was flying over Tranquility Base on July 20th, 1969, because skill doesn't weigh anything. I think those of us uh, that have participated in the development of the Apollo uh, spacecraft believe that it's uh, the best way. Uh, certainly was the one that was uh, promised to be the least expensive and the, the one that would use the, less, the least time. And NASA had come upon what it considered to be the best compromise between weight and safety. A smaller, slimmer version of the Nova, a three-stage rocket called the Saturn V, would lift everything needed for a single moon mission without any additional launches. Five, not eight, massive F-1 engines would produce seven and a half million pounds of thrust at liftoff and burn for about two and a half minutes before being cut loose to fall into the Atlantic not too far from where Ham the Astrochimp had splashed down in his early Mercury capsule. Then five smaller engines on the second stage would continue this acceleration. And then finally... Apollo 11, this is Houston. You are confirmed to go for orbit. A single-engined, really remarkable third stage would get them safely into Earth orbit, and then, if all systems were go... We confirm ignition, and the thrust is go. ...would fire again to accelerate that motley collection of modules out towards the moon. Hey, Houston, Apollo 11, that Saturn gave us a magnificent ride. Uh, Roger, 11, we'll pass that on, and it certainly looks like you're well on your way now. And we'll be right back after a message from our sponsor. Remember when you could just go to the doctor and have him look at you and you'd write him a check and that would be pretty much the end of it? No, me neither. Nowadays, the insurance laws are something like 
what are they, seven or eight feet tall in a stack, just trying to find an insurance policy, life insurance policy, any kind of policy. It's just plain nuts. The paperwork is overwhelming and nobody really knows what any of it says anyway. That's why we use Policy Genius because it's the easiest way to shop for any kind of insurance online. It takes about two minutes and once you apply, our Policy Genius team is going to handle all of the paperwork and all of the red tape. That's the stuff that really makes my life just want to fall in and collapse. It's financial protection and peace of mind. And Policy Genius doesn't just make life insurance easily. They can also find you home insurance or auto insurance, disability insurance, all of those. So look, if you need life insurance, but you don't want to deal with that stack of papers that's pretty quickly going to be reaching to the moon, you can head to policygenius.com. Compare all of the top insurers, find the one that's best for you. Policy Genius, delegate what you hate, especially if you hate getting life insurance. Now, once established on the three-day cruise, something remarkable would happen. That brand new three-man Apollo capsule, to be called the command module, would sit on top of a beefy collection of water, oxygen, instrumentation, thrusters, fuel, and one big old nasty rocket engine. It was called the service module. And right up until the final minutes of the mission, the command and service modules would function as a single vehicle, sometimes called the CSM. On the way to the moon, the command module pilot would turn the CSM 180 degrees, facing backwards now, and aim it towards the top of the third stage that it had just undocked from. Four external fairings would open up like a lily and reveal inside the shriveled-looking lamets, four spindly legs folded so that it would fit inside the third stage. The CSM would then dock with the top of the lunar module, and then using its thrusters, gently pull the lunar module out of its cradle. The now empty Saturn V third stage would continue on into the void as the command, service, and lunar modules made periodic course corrections as they headed towards the moon. That beefy motor at the back of the CSM would then light to slow the combined modules into lunar orbit. 11, this is Houston. Uh, you are go for LOI, over. Once safely, safely established in lunar orbit, Two of the three astronauts would travel from the command module into the two-stage lunar module. Hatches on both vehicles would be sealed, and the lunar module, with two astronauts, would undock from the command service module, which would remain in orbit under the command of the solitary command module pilot. The two-stage lunar module would then fire the descent engine to ride down to the lunar surface, powered by the lower descent stage, wrapped in gold foil for thermal protection. Once landed, the astronauts would prepare for their exit of the lunar module, descend down the ladder to the footpad of the limb, and then step off onto the moon. Yeah, I'm going to step off the limb now. Making sure not to lock it on my way out. <laughs> now, after completing their moonwalk, the two astronauts would climb back past the spent descent stage, gleaming gold in the stark sunlight, and re-enter the delicate upper stage of the yeah, lunar please. module. And you're cleared for takeoff. Roger, understand. We're number one on the runway. Roger. The top of the limb would fire the smaller ascent stage engine using the four-legged descent stage as a launch pad. Then, the ungainly, asymmetrical, triangular-eyed ascent stage would climb into rendezvous with the command service module. The astronauts and the samples would be transferred to the triangular command module, the upper stage of the LEM would be jettisoned to crash back into the lunar surface, and the engine on the back of the service module would fire one final time to accelerate them out of lunar orbit 
and get them headed back to Earth. A verse in the Psalms comes to mind to me. I consider the heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained. What is man that thou art mindful of him? Another three days of relatively uneventful cruise to get home, and shortly before re-entry, the trusty service module would also be jettisoned, leaving only the three men, plus whatever they'd gathered on the lunar surface, to endure the terrific heat of a re-entry even hotter than those that went before, due to the fact that the capsule was carrying so much extra speed since it was coming back from the moon. Once safely past the scorching heat of re-entry, a small drogue parachute would open that would slow and stabilize the command module, and then at 10,000 feet, the three main parachutes would blossom open, lowering the tiny command module into the water to be recovered by a, hopefully, nearby aircraft carrier. Piece of cake. The good news was that this lunar rendezvous method meant that only the lightest possible lunar module would actually make the descent. The even lighter upper stage would come back from the surface, and the combined weight of the command and service modules would not need all of the extra propellant required to land it and get it to take off again, as you would in the direct ascent model. The bad news was that this would require undocking the command and service modules from the third stage, turning around to dock with the LEM to pull it free, performing a long deceleration burn to enter lunar orbit, undocking with the command module, riding the descent stage of the LEM to the surface, making an entirely separate launch from the moon using an untried engine in the ascent stage, then redocking with the command module again, doing another long burn on the service module engine, and then simply burning off all of that excess speed in the re-entry of all re-entries, and then finally hoping that the parachutes that had been frozen and broiled hundreds of times during the eight-day journey would work perfectly, that the flotation collar on the command module would deploy, that a helicopter would arrive in time, that the three astronauts could exit to a small inflatable raft without falling overboard and drowning, that they could be winched 10 stories into the sky without the failure of the basket, the cable, or the helicopter, and then make a safe landing on the carrier deck and return from the South Pacific without hitting an iceberg. So what could possibly go wrong? Now, obviously, this is clearly impossible. And true enough to do all of that from a standing start could never have been accomplished, but when the Wright brothers set out to build a flying machine, they didn't start with the blueprints for an F-22 Raptor with advanced stealth capabilities, retractable landing gear, over-the-horizon radars, and air-to-air missiles. That was just a little bit beyond the Wright brothers' reach. What they did build was a lightweight wooden skeleton, fabric-covered wings, a home-built 12-horsepower engine controlled by simple levers and using wires to deform the wings, simple rods to raise and lower the elevator. You will never understand how we landed on the moon if you don't understand the difference between the Wright Flyer and the F-22. Building an F-22 from scratch is utterly impossible. But building a rickety test vehicle is not far from building a fabric-wing World War I fighter like the Sopwith Camel which is not too far short of a wooden skin monoplane like the Hawker Hurricane, which naturally leads to a steel and aluminum turbocharged P-51 Mustang. Sometimes breakthroughs occur, like the jet engine, giving you the F-86 Sabre just a couple of years later. From the Sabre, it's not too big a leap to go to supersonic flight in the F-100 and the F-4 Phantom, fly-by-wire appears with the F-16 Viper, and stealth with the boxy-looking F-117. Now, throw in advanced radars on the F-15 Eagle, state-of-the-art engines on the F-18 Hornet, 
And then with a little elbow grease, you can look up and see a sixth generation fighter called an F-22. This is called incrementalism. So if the question is, how do you land on the moon? The answer is one step at a time, mister. Project Apollo was not just a monolithic block of lunar landing missions. There were, in fact, 10 different Apollo mission types laid out at the beginning of the program. Let me read them to you in a row so you get a sense of the incremental steps each variant would advance. Apollo A missions would be an unmanned test of the command and service module in low Earth orbit. Apollo B missions would test the unmanned lunar module in Earth orbit. These missions would be followed by Apollo C, the first manned flight of the program, essentially repeating the A mission by testing the command and service modules, but this time with a live human crew. Apollo D would add the lunar module to a manned mission in low Earth orbit, followed by Apollo E, which would be a crewed mission featuring a partial firing of the third stage CSM and LEM into a highly elliptical orbit ranging from low Earth orbit, about 120 miles, all the way out to 3,500 miles. It would still remain well within the Earth's gravity field. Apollo F would fly the command, service, and lunar modules into lunar orbit, operate the vehicles, descend in the LEM to some distance above the moon, and then abort back up to lunar orbit before returning. The first moon landing would be the minimal Apollo G mission, with one EVA and no more than 24 hours on the moon. There might be several of these G-type missions before an advanced LEM on the H missions could extend the stay to two days and two moonwalks. Then would come the I missions, which would allow the command module longer stays in lunar orbit for further mapping and experimentation, and finally, the Block 3 lunar module, complete with a two-seat golf cart-sized moon rover, would allow stays of three days and three moonwalks, or moon drives, if you prefer. And we'll be right back after a message from our sponsors. Don't you just hate these little, like, physical chores that you have to do, little trip, you have to get in your car, drive someplace, and, and handle something that you should just be able to do on your computer? It's like, you know, it's like oral surgery. They don't give you any anesthesia. Now, I'm not saying it's living in Stalingrad or anything, but frankly, I like to save a lot of time. So what I do is I use Stamps.com. Stamps.com basically takes the entire U.S. post office and puts it right there in your computer. If you have a few letters to send, they print out the labels for that. If you got a little mom and pop operation, certainly can handle that. As a matter of fact, even if you've got a warehouse and you're cranking out hundreds of thousands of orders a day, you can do it with Stamps.com. Stamps.com will give you a five cent off of every first class stamp and up to 40% off of priority mail during this special offer. It's used by over 700,000 small businesses right now at this moment. But I got to tell you, of all the stuff that this includes, you also get not only a four week free trial, but you also get this cool little digital scale, comes with no long term commitment. You put the letter on the scale, scale talks to the computer, computer prints the label, you slap it on there, and you're on your way. So just go to stamps.com, click on the microphone up at the top of the homepage and type in the word Apollo. That's stamps.com and enter the word Apollo. Not all of the missions would require the same hardware, namely the mighty Saturn V. The smaller and far simpler Saturn I could do the job of getting hardware into low Earth orbit. The stubby, single-stage Little Joe II could test the launch escape system, which would snatch the three men in the command module up, up, and away from any in-flight catastrophe. 
All of these programs began in earnest, and from the very beginning, it was decided that individual private aerospace companies would be responsible for the individual components. North American Rockwell would build both the command and service modules, as well as the second stage of the Saturn V. The U.S. Naval Aviation Specialist Grumman would build both the descent and ascent stages of the lunar module. Commercial aviation giant Boeing would build the immense first stage of the Saturn V, and the critical third stage went to its arch-rival Douglas Aircraft Company. IBM would handle the instruments, guidance, and telemetry functions. And unlike the Titan II booster used on the Gemini program, which just leapt off the pad, the sheer size of the Saturn V made it far more sluggish, almost lethargic at liftoff. Dick Gordon who flew both on Gemini 11 and Apollo 12, would later describe the Saturn V as an old man's ride compared to the zippy Titan II. In fact, Buzz Aldrin and a few other Saturn V jockeys admitted that they could not tell exactly when the Saturn V had lifted off the pad without checking their instruments. That kind of thing wasn't a problem on Gemini Titan. The Redstone and Atlas boosters used in Project Mercury and the Titan rocket used for the Gemini missions all had one thing in common. They began their lives as ICBMs, intercontinental ballistic missiles. They were designed to be slender enough to fit inside an underground launch silo. But the first of the new series, the Saturn One, was under no such restrictions. Just looking at it on the pad, you can tell that this is a whole new breed. It's just a big, fat, nasty rocket. Von Braun basically took eight of his Redstone boosters, the ones used to launch Alan Shepard and Gus Grissom on the first two suborbital Mercury missions, and strapped them together to make a single first stage known by critics of the design as Cluster's Last Stand. Squat, blocky, and loud the Saturn I flew 10 flawless missions. The first four were suborbital test flights. Mission 5 added a powerful second stage. In fact, when President Kennedy first inspected this SA-5 mission prior to launch, he realized that with this combination, the United States had finally produced a booster stronger than anything the Soviets had ever flown. SA-5 cleared the pad on January 29th, 1964, 69 days after John Fitzgerald Kennedy was shot through the head during a motorcade trip through Dallas, Texas on November 22nd, 1963. Kennedy did not live to see the finish of the space race, but he did live long enough, just barely long enough, to see his nation finally come from behind to take the lead and run with it all the way to the Sea of Tranquility. Developing and proving of the launch vehicle. Flight testing of the Saturn I series, which began in 1961, ended in 1965 with a 10 for 10 record. The Saturn I was designed from the ground up as a testing and experimental vehicle rather than being a modified weapon. And despite the fact that it never flew a manned mission, it turned out that this was not going to be Cluster's last stand after all. A much improved version, the uprated Saturn I, or the Saturn 1B, would become the unsung workhorse of the Apollo, Skylab, and Apollo Soyuz programs. I was there at Cape Kennedy for the last Saturn flight in history. It was July 15, 1975, when SA-210, the final Saturn 1B, launched the final Apollo capsule for a rendezvous with the Soviet Soyuz capsule. 
The space race that had begun with the launch of Sputnik 1 on October 4, 1957, came to a close a few hours after that launch, when the hatch between the two spacecraft opened and veterans of Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo missions shook hands with flight engineer Valery Kubasov and cosmonaut Alexei Leonov, who had come so close to dying trying to re-enter his inflatable airlock on Vostok 1 just a decade earlier. Now, as the Saturn V slowly began to take shape, the first flight of the Apollo program, AS-201, took place on February 26, 1966, when a Saturn 1B lifted the brand new Block 1 command and service modules up on a suborbital flight. Two more test flights followed, testing how the super-cold liquid hydrogen fuel needed for the moon missions behaved in zero gravity. Everything was looking good. AS-204 was ready to fly the first Apollo astronauts and their brand new Apollo capsule into Earth orbit atop the proven and reliable Saturn 1B. Launch was set for February 21, 1967. AS-204 was given the name Apollo 1. The mission patch depicted the command and service modules in Earth orbit with the still distant moon far beyond. A circular American flag motif formed the outer border. Now, NASA was taking no chances on this first ever Apollo man mission. Seasoned Mercury and Jiminy veteran Gus Grissom, the second American to fly in space, would be mission commander. Ed White, who'd been so reluctant to end the first American spacewalk on Jiminy 4 a few years earlier, would fly as senior pilot. And the third seat went to a boyish-looking rookie named Roger Chaffee. No, this was definitely the A-team with a Mercury Gemini Apollo commander, a Gemini Apollo senior pilot, and an Apollo-only former Boy Scout making his first trip into space. Now, three weeks before liftoff, first Grissom, then Chaffee, and finally White entered their command module capsule for what was considered a non-hazardous pre-flight test. The three astronauts in full pressure suits strapped themselves into the Block 1 capsule to perform what's called a plugs-out test of the command and service modules, running the vehicles on simulated internal power only, as if all the cables and umbilicals were detached. Now, since the Saturn 1B was not yet fueled with its supercooled propellant, there was no need to add the risk of a misfiring of pyrotechnic systems. In other words, in the interest of safety, the explosive bolt securing the hatch had been disabled for the test. Now, almost immediately, Gus Grissom reported smelling sour buttermilk in the capsule. No cause of the odor could be found, so the test continued. At about 2.45 p.m., the complex three-part Apollo Block 1 hatch was closed. Partially closed, anyway, because a few external cables were needed to simulate the capsule's internal power supply, which would later be generated by hydrogen fuel cells during the actual mission. The interior of the capsule was then pressurized to 16.7 psi of pure oxygen, an overpressure relative to the surrounding atmosphere to keep dust and small debris moving out of the capsule rather than letting anything blow in. Now, a stuck microphone had held up the test for two hours, causing Grissom to turn to his crewmates and say, how are we going to go to the moon if we can't even talk between two buildings? A little after 6.30 p.m., as the astronauts were running through a checklist yet again, there was a spike on the voltage on AC bus number two. Nine seconds later, one of the three men, almost certainly Gus Grissom, shouted, fire, followed by two seconds of struggling recorded by Grissom's stuck microphone. Then Ed White reported, we've got a fire in the cockpit. Seven seconds after that, 
a badly garbled message was received. It's hard to decipher what was actually said, but we've got a bad fire, let's get out, we're burning up, was the likeliest interpretation. Now, this final transmission lasted for five seconds. It ended with a scream of pain. Now, some witnesses on the ground in the blockhouse reported seeing Ed White reaching for the hatch release handle as flames spread throughout the capsule. Pressure from the hot gases then ruptured the inner lining of the command module, causing flames to rush out of two access panels. Now, the support crew up in the gantry had been issued gas masks, but these were designed to protect from chemical leaks and were near useless against the heat and the heavy smoke pouring from inside the Apollo 1 capsule. There was a serious concern that the capsule might actually explode or that the heat would ignite the solid rocket booster on the escape tower, killing everyone in the gantry. It took five minutes to open all three hatch layers. Cabin lights were still on, but at first they couldn't see the bodies because of the dense black smoke. But when the smoke began to clear, Gus Grissom was lying on the floor near the hatch, having unstrapped from his couch in an attempt to force the door open. Ed White's restraining belts had burned through. He was lying sideways just below the hatch he'd fought to free. Chaffee was found still strapped to his right-hand seat. Emergency procedures had dictated that he remain in position to maintain communication until White had gotten the hatch open. Roger Chaffee died at his post. So much nylon had melted during the fire that the bodies had been fused into their final positions. It took almost 90 minutes to remove them from their Apollo spacecraft. Grounded Mercury astronaut Deke Slayton was among the first on the scene. He was in charge of the astronaut program, and he'd worked with Gus Grissom since both had been chosen as part of the Mercury 7 at the very beginning of the space race. Looking down at the bodies of Ed White and Gus Grissom, Slayton later said that the two bodies had been so badly jumbled together that he couldn't tell whose head belonged to who. Now, there was some comfort, significant comfort, when the autopsy revealed that the cause of death of all three men was cardiac arrest caused by carbon monoxide poisoning. Although all three had suffered third-degree burns, it was determined that most, if not all of these, had happened after the crew's death by asphyxiation. Ed White, Gus Grissom, and Roger Chaffee, not the first American astronauts to be killed in an attempt to reach the moon, one week short of a year before the Apollo 1 fire, the prime crew of Gemini 9, Group 2 recruit Elliot C., and Group 3 astronaut Charlie Bassett were killed when their T-38 jet crashed in bad weather, their bodies coming to rest within 500 feet of their Gemini 9 capsule. But White, Chaffee, and Grissom were the first Americans to die in their suits and aboard their vehicle. Seven more would join them in January of 1986 when the space shuttle Challenger exploded on launch, and another seven would be added to this grim total in February of 2003, when Challenger's sister ship, Columbia, broke up upon re-entry. All of these men and women knew the risks they were taking. No one expected to do things as difficult and as dangerous as this without likely paying the price in lives. But what breaks my heart is not so much the fact that these 17 astronauts died at their stations. It's the fact that in all three cases, there had been very serious cause for alarm well before each of the fatal accidents had occurred. 
There's a picture of Grissom, White, and Chaffee, just one gag exposure after the standard, optimistic official mission photo. All three of them are bent over a model of the Block One Apollo capsule. They have their eyes closed, and they have their hands clasped in prayer. There had been so many problems with the Apollo 1 capsule, including repeated pleading to remove the abundance of flammable materials, that Grissom talked his crewmates into snapping that gag photo, which he then sent to Joseph Shea, the Apollo spacecraft program officer, with the caption, It isn't that we don't trust you, Joe, but this time we've decided to go over your head. In other words, if NASA wouldn't listen to their concerns, hopefully God in heaven would. 623 squawks, those would be individual maintenance reports, were attached to the Apollo 1 capsule after taking delivery at the Kennedy Space Center. Prior to that, 113 fixes had to be made just to get a conditional certificate of flight worthiness. Grissom had become so frustrated with these constant engineering fixes not being present in the simulator that he took a lemon from a tree at his house and hung it from the front of the Apollo 1 mock-up. In 2017, the charred, clumsy, three-part hatch of Apollo 1 went on display at the Kennedy Space Center. The actual capsule rests in a small, completely nondescript, pressed aluminum structure at NASA's Langley Research Center in Virginia. Seeing the Apollo 1 capsule sitting alone in the corner of a storage room immediately reminded me of watching the Ark of the Covenant disappearing into that ocean of crates at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Never time or money to do it right, but always time and money to do it over. Apollo 4 was tested more persistently than any previous American space vehicle. There were no indications of systems malfunctions. The Block 1 command modules would fly unmanned on Apollo 4, the first flight of the Saturn V, and a second one on Apollo 6 for Saturn V's only serious mishap in 13 consecutive successful launches. But Apollo 1 would remain the only crew on this first version of the command module. It took 18 months of extensive redesign to create the vastly improved Block 2 with far better pressure suits, wiring, acceleration couches, quality control, and a one-piece quick-release hatch. Grissom, White, and Chaffee all felt that their Block 1 capsule was an accident waiting to happen. That this accident happened to them before Apollo 1 left the pad, and not, perhaps, to Mike Collins orbiting the moon in Apollo 11's Block 2 capsule, a catastrophe that would have killed Collins and left Armstrong and Aldrin stranded forever on the surface of the moon or in orbit around it. Then finally, a year and a half after that horrible January day, the Apollo program finally started to hit its stride. The next four manned missions pushing fast and hard now against that December 31st, 1969 deadline challenge issued by President Kennedy. Could they make up the year and a half lost to fire without rushing headlong into another catastrophe? Well, they were the by God about to find out. The purpose of the flight of Apollo 7 could be stated very simply. Prove that the spacecraft command and service modules would function properly in space long enough to carry men to the moon and back. Apollo 7, October 11, 1968, just 283 days before Armstrong and Aldrin were depressurizing the LEM to begin their two-hour and 15-minute moonwalk. Pilots Don Isley and Walt Cunningham, both on their first and only spaceflights, were joined by Commander Wally Schirra, 
a Mercury 7 astronaut like his friend Gus Grissom. They blasted off in a Saturn 1B for almost 11 days in Earth orbit. While the third stage, which would later contain the lunar module on subsequent missions, was empty on this flight, Isley nevertheless performed a simulated docking with a bolted-on target adapter. But then the real work began. Critical to every Apollo flight's ability to enter and leave lunar orbit was the surface propulsion system, a big, beefy rocket nozzle at the rear of the Command Service Modules, or CSM. Apollo 7's main objective was to test this SMS rocket while still in Earth orbit. If this engine did not ignite to decelerate the CSM on the upcoming moon missions, the crew would race past the moon and continue far, far out into the solar system, become just a very small artificial planet in perpetual orbit around the sun. Now, they fired that engine eight times on Apollo 7, all eight burns igniting flawlessly and within 1% of predicted parameters. They also conducted the first live TV broadcast from an American spacecraft. It's from that uh, lovely Apollo something. You guys should write Apollo Realm. The crew held up a hand-lettered sign reading, keep those cards and letters coming in, folks. But despite the playfulness, Apollo 7 did have a very serious problem. In fact, a potentially catastrophic one. Now, this problem could not be solved by engineers or technicians. This one would need a psychiatrist. And we'll be right back after a message from our sponsor. And that sponsor is NetSuite. Look, you may or may not know this, but this program is recorded from deep inside the Rocky Mountains here at Apollo Backup Mission Control. Now, down here, we have our pretty simple financial needs, really. We have a Monthly budget for Tang and space food sticks. There's a dry cleaning bill for the suit and formaldehyde drip for the host. But other than that, it's really pretty simple. However, if you run a real business in the real world, you probably realize that keeping track of your money is really the entire problem. And one of the problems is, is that you have all these different systems for keeping track of the money. Sales has their own system. Accounting has one. Inventory's got one. Too much time, too many resources, and that ends up hurting the bottom line. So listen to this thing called NetSuite by Oracle. That's business management software. It's cloud-based, and it handles every aspect of your business, and it gives you the visibility to control the money that you need to be able to see in one place and control. With NetSuite, you save time, money, and a lot of unneeded headaches because sales, finance, accounting, orders, HR, all of that money's in one place. You can get to it from your desktop and you can get to it from your phone. That's why NetSuite is the world's number one cloud-based business system. And right now, NetSuite is offering you a valuable guide called Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits. You can get that at netsuite.com slash Apollo. That's netsuite.com slash Apollo for your free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, netsuite.com slash Apollo. Despite being one of the original Mercury 7 astronauts, Wally Shira was not happy even before the launch. The decision had been made to launch Apollo 7 despite the fact that an unexpected easterly wind meant that in the event of an abort, Apollo 7 would land not out in the ocean, but rather on the Florida Peninsula. Now, Apollo 7, though technically a Block 2 capsule, still had the old-style Apollo 1-type crew couches, and these were deemed insufficient to protect the crew from injury or even death if they should have to hard land on, and not off the shore of, the Sunshine State. 
Eleven days in the command module and suffering from a severe head cold, Shira began to get testy. And then downright mutinous as the mission continued, and so did rookies Isley and Cunningham. Shira flat out refused to turn on the TV camera when scheduled, snapping back to CATCOM that as mission commander, he would do so when he thought it was safe. All three of them complained about the food, not to mention the sanitary arrangements. That meant it took about 30 minutes to perform a bowel movement, and the resulting seal left something to be desired as well. If you can imagine yourself spending 11 days in three porta potties mounted side by side with the interior partitions removed, you'd have a pretty good idea of what conditions aboard Apollo 7 were exactly like. But a far more serious exchange took place just before landing. Now, every American mission since Alan Shepard's Freedom 7 flight dictated the obvious necessity of each crewman being in a fully pressurized spacesuit during re-entry, where stresses on the vehicle were enormous and cabin depressurization would prove fatal. Parenthetically, four years later, the Russian crew of Soyuz 11 would re-enter without space helmets being worn. When the recovery crews opened the hatch, it appeared as if all three cosmonauts had fallen asleep. A pressure leak in the capsule had killed them all at the beginning of re-entry, and they would remain the only three people to have died while actually in outer space. The problem was that the new one-piece bubble helmets that had followed the changes made after the Apollo 1 fire were unique in that they were the first and only NASA helmets that could not be opened in front by use of a visor. Wally Shira, irritable and in constant pain from his eardrums, refused to put on this helmet for re-entry. He was concerned that without the ability to equalize ear pressure by blowing down his nose, his eardrums would rupture as the pressure increased during the descent. Something like a shouting match developed between Apollo 7 Mission Commander Wally Shira and head of the astronaut program fellow Mercury 7 astronaut Deke Slayton. Shira flat out refused to wear the helmet. Slayton told him that he'd have to answer for it when he landed. This was not Wally Shira's finest moment. He'd already announced prior to the launch of Apollo 7 that this would be his last flight. 18 months after the Apollo 1 fire, Shira was still utterly devastated over the death of his closest friend and neighbor, Gus Grissom. Now, you may remember from our last segment that when Grissom was suspected of prematurely blowing the explosive bolts on the second Mercury mission, causing the loss of the capsule and very nearly the life of Gus Grissom, it was Wally Shira that intentionally blew the bolts on his Sigma-7 Mercury capsule once it was safely aboard the recovery ship, emerging with a characteristic bruise that resulted from this procedure and which Gus Grissom did not have. Now, Shira knew that this would be his last mission, but not so for fellow crewmen Isley and Cunningham. But after this mutiny in space, neither astronaut was deemed reliable enough to risk on future missions. Shira's lack of leadership on Apollo 7 cost those two men their careers as well. But now, at long last, it was time for someone to ride a Saturn V. But there was another problem. The LEM wasn't ready, and time was running out. Now, remember that list of Apollo mission types that we outlined at the beginning of this segment? Delays in the delivery of a man-rated lunar module, not to mention the loss of 18 months after Apollo 1, 
meant that precise progression of mission types was starting to fall apart. Apollo A missions, the unmanned test of command and service modules in Earth orbit, had been completed on Apollo 4. Apollo B, the Earth orbital test of an unmanned lunar module, had been accomplished in Apollo 6. And an Apollo C mission, a manned test of the command and service modules, had just been completed successfully, if not cordially, on Apollo 7. Now, next was the D mission, a manned test of both the command service module and the lunar module in Earth orbit, but the lunar module wasn't ready. Looking ahead to the next mission, the E mission, was a high-orbit elliptical test of both systems, but that couldn't be accomplished yet either. They needed a LEM for that mission as well. And even though they'd wanted to skip both stages and proceed to the dress rehearsal, the F mission, they would still need a lunar module, the first of which was not going to be ready for several more months. So, NASA looked at the cards they were holding, they had a good command service module, and they had a Saturn V ready to go, but no LEM. It was August of 1968, 11 months before the Eagle would land at Tranquility Base. So, they improvised. They would delay the mission objective of Apollo D, that would be the manned test of both the LEM and CSM in Earth orbit, and they would throw the E mission right out the window. They had a moon rocket, they had a moon capsule, and they had a moon crew. So they would go to the moon without a lunar module just to kill time. It was the boldest, most brilliant decision made during the entire Apollo program. Apollo 8 would go to the moon in December of 1968. When they came home, if they came home, there would be one calendar year left to fulfill the promise of a young president with at least two missions left to fly before the first landing was even attempted. And that is how Jim Lovell Frank Borman and Bill Anders found themselves watching the Earth rise above the lunar horizon. They were the first humans to leave the gravity well of the Earth and to orbit another world. And as they began their ninth orbit of their 10-orbit mission, the Earth rose again above the lunar horizon. Back on Earth, Christmas Eve was coming to an anxious close as three Americans disappeared again and again behind the far side of the moon. A live TV broadcast had been scheduled and Americans and the rest of the world were glued to their TV sets to hear what the crew of Apollo 8, now 2,400 times further away than any men before them, American or Soviet, had ever flown, including the crew of Apollo 7 just two months earlier. There was one giant leap for you. Borman introduced the crew to the live audience back on Earth. He could, by simply raising his thumb, block out every human being on the planet, everyone that had ever lived on the earth. And then on Christmas Eve, the whole world listened first to Anders and then Lovell and finally Borman as they broadcast live from the moon. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said... Let there be light, and there was light, and God saw the light, that it was good, and divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and the evening and the morning were the first day. And then, in an elegant piece of improvisation, Frank Borman added this. And from the crew of Apollo 8, we close with good night, good luck, a Merry Christmas, and God bless all of you, all of you on the good earth. 
Apollo 8, not Apollo 11, was our first voyage to the moon. We ad-libbed our way in a capsule with no name on a mission that had never been planned at Christmas of the most turbulent year America had seen since the Civil War. Oh, and one more small detail. The mission swapping affected everything downstream. And one of the things that changed was that the backup crews of Apollos 8 and 9 would also switch places. Apollo 9's backup crew, that'd be gap-toothed, bald, and smiling Pete Conrad, along with lighthearted lunar module pilot Alan Bean and command module pilot Dick Gordon, got rotated from Apollo 11 to Apollo 12, while the backup crew for Apollo 8, Neil Armstrong's crew, got moved up from Apollo 12 to Apollo 11. That must have been a pretty rough call for Pete Conrad and Alan Bean, whose names they had fully expected to pass into immortality as being the first men on the moon. March 3rd, 1969, 140 days before the landing of Apollo 11. The first of the man-rated LEMS was finally ready for its first shakedown crew. Apollo 9 would step back to finish the demission, skipped due to delays with the lunar module. Call signs began to be used for the first time in Project Apollo during the flight of Apollo 9. NASA had stopped allowing crews to name their spacecraft after Gus Grissom had given his Jiminy 3 capsule the name Molly Brown after the unsinkable Molly Brown of legend in a backhanded reference to his Liberty Bell 7 capsule sinking after splashdown. But now, for the first time, the two independent spacecrafts, the command service module and the lunar module, would be on the same flight, separated by distances of a few inches to 115 miles. They couldn't both be called Apollo 9. So starting with this mission, all the remaining moon missions would fly in ships named by their flight crews. Jim McDivitt, who had pleaded with the late Ed White to return from his spacewalk on Jiminy 4, would command this mission Dave Scott, who'd been sitting next to Neil Armstrong on Gemini 8 when that capsule threatened to spin itself to pieces, would pilot the Apollo 9 command service module named Gumdrop, while Rusty Schreikert would put the lunar module Spider through its paces. Now, after another faultless launch of their Saturn V booster, Dave Scott repeated the 180-degree turn that the now permanently grounded Apollo 7 mutineer Don Isley had completed just a few months before. Only this time, there was no small metallic docking target bolted in front of the gaping empty hold of the third stage. This time, curled tight as a butterfly in its cocoon, was an entirely separate spacecraft. Scott made the docking and then gently pulled Spider free from the confines of the Saturn V third stage. The next time this critical maneuver would be attempted, it would be on the way to the moon. A full-fledged shakedown of both command and lunar modules had to be delayed for several hours due to repeated incidences of what George Carlin would euphemistically call involuntary personal protein spills on the part of lunar module pilot Rusty Schweikert. Now, believe it or not, after the entire run of Mercury and Gemini missions, plus two previous manned Apollo flights, this was the first time that space sickness really impacted American astronauts. It was later discovered that while the Apollo command module could not exactly be described as roomy, when docked to the LEM, there was enough room for astronauts to twist and float in a way that they'd never been able to do before strapped tight to their couches. Now that disorientation between the eyes and the inner ear caused Schweikert and many, many more after him 
to become violently ill, although none as miserably sick as mission specialist Jake Garn flying aboard the space shuttle Discovery on STS-51D. Jake Garn would go on to some fame as a U.S. senator from Utah for almost 20 years. He achieved a different sort of fame among NASA's astronaut corps, however. Garn became so wretchedly, miserably space-sick for so long that anyone flying afterward would rate their level of nausea on the Garn scale. Dr. Robert E. Stevenson, who'd studied the problem, went on to say that Garn, quote, represents the maximum level of space sickness that anyone can ever attain, and so the mark of being totally sick and totally incompetent is one Garn. Most guys will get maybe a tenth of a Garn, if that high. And within the astronaut corps, he'll forever be remembered by that, unquote. Schweikert vomited in the command module when squirming around energetically in order to get into his spacesuit. Mission Commander McDivitt felt queasy as well. But when Rusty Schweikert pushed himself into the lunar module, he rocketed up the Garn scale and was vomiting so severely that back aboard Gumdrop, McDivitt was concerned enough to request a private channel to mission control doctors. Aboard Spider during that miserable time, Rusty was genuinely worried enough about it to fear that he would cost them the moon landing in 1969. Fortunately, things eventually settled down. A test firing of the LEM main engine while still docked to the command service module was not ever part of any of the mission profiles, but they tried it anyway and found out it worked pretty well. Information that would prove very, very important to three different men on a different mission 404 days into the future. On day five, McDivitt and a considerably less green Schweikert entered the Spider, closed the hatch, as command module pilot Dave Scott, now alone aboard Gumdrop, did the same. Scott pushed the button that would release the lunar module. Nothing happened. Spider was hung up on the docking latches, so Scott jiggled the keys a little, and the next thing you know, Spider floated free. The two astronauts aboard Spider had just become the first humans ever to fly in a spacecraft that was incapable of getting them home. Its gossamer thin legs now fully extended, McDivitt and Schweikert put the LEM through its paces. Slowly and repeatedly firing the descent engine, which reassuringly enough sprang to life every single time, Spider soon accelerated to a higher and therefore slower orbit, allowing Gumdrop to slowly drift more than 100 miles ahead before Spider lowered its orbit and caught back up again. Now, even though all of the docking maneuvers were slated to be accomplished by the command module pilot, McDivitt actually redocked using only the LEM. Twin EVAs were performed, testing the Apollo moon suit in space. It was a textbook mission. Everything had worked perfectly, and mission control was so ecstatic that there was serious talk for a while of canceling the dress rehearsal flight still to come. When Buzz Aldrin, back at Mission Control, watched on TV as Dave Scott successfully pulled the spider free of its third stage, he knew at that moment that he was going to be one of the two men who would, in fact, touch down on the moon at precisely the same instant. Now, he could not have possibly guessed, however, that it would be he himself and not Neil Armstrong who would stand centered in the frame of the most famous photograph in the history of the world. Slow and steady, precise and methodical, each individual step a small miracle in itself, but not particularly more difficult than the one that had come before. 
The dress rehearsal would proceed as planned, and if payback had not been forthcoming, and as it turned out it was, then the crew of Apollo 10 would surely have entered the record books as the most frustrated men in the history of the world. Now, as dress rehearsals go, Apollo 10 wasn't just a line reading with actors sitting on stools. This was the whole show in its entirety. Lights, props, costumes, makeup, sets, audience, and a full orchestra. Like Apollo 9, this flight would have a fully capable command module, service module, and lunar module. Like Apollo 8, it was going to the moon. Like Apollo 11, the LEM would undock, fired the descent engines, and slowly fly down to the surface. But unlike Apollo 11, Apollo 10 would then hit the abort switch, send the descent stage crashing into the moon, and then return to the lunar orbit and make the long, sad, disappointed trip home. So here at last, the last box before the moon landing was checked. This would be the F mission, the final flight before the grab for the prize. Apollo 10. Man's second journey to orbit the moon was a full-scale rehearsal of all of the activities required to land men on the lunar surface, except for the actual landing. Three-time Jiminy pilot Tom Stafford would be the mission commander on Apollo 10. Gene Cernan would accompany him in the lunar module on this, his second mission, and John Young, who would go on to command the first space shuttle flight 12 years later, was making his third trip into space. All three of them would get one more ride in an Apollo capsule, but only Stafford would not be returning to the moon one last time. There would only be one other Apollo mission with a crew comprised entirely of veterans, and that was the mission that was going to follow Apollo 10. Now, the mission got off to a rocky start, at least as far as the PR value was concerned. Having just re-allowed the crews to name their own vehicles on the previous flight, no one except the crew was very happy to discover that the command module on this pinnacle mission was to be named Charlie Brown, and the Lem, the magnificent Lem, which having survived the name Spider, would go on to majestic call signs like Eagle, Intrepid, Aquarius, Antares, Falcon, Orion. This would be named Snoopy. Naming restrictions would tighten significantly after Apollo 10 with an imperfect record of success. And so, on May 18, 1969, precisely 60 days before the launch of Apollo 11, the fifth of 15 Saturn Vs lifted off against the Florida sky. Command module pilot John Young plucked the second lunar module from the Saturn V third stage, but this time they were on the way to the moon when he did so. The launch directors found that they had been within seven thousandths of a second of their planned time for liftoff. It was going well. Right on time, right on target. That big engine on the service module performed as advertised, easing the ships into lunar orbit. And then the crew began the transfer procedures. And finally, with Tom Stafford and Gene Cernan aboard, they sealed the hatch on Snoopy just as John Young closed the door on Charlie Brown. The two craft undocked, and Stafford started the descent procedures that Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin would perform two months into the future. They rode Snoopy all the way down to PDI, Powered Descent Initiation, the point at which the lunar module begins the terminal burn all the way down to the surface. Now, pilot error resulted in an unexpected roll on the way down, and that gave millions of people watching live on Earth a chance to learn some new four-letter words before Mission Control cut the audio. 
Again, the sound of that ever-present bullet whistling past our ears. A few more of those revolutions would have put Snoopy into an unrecoverable attitude that would have sent them crashing into the lunar surface, creating perhaps some brand new lunar crater for the upcoming crew of Apollo 11 to steer by as it began its final approach to a gravesite. Now, at 50,000 feet above the moon's surface, that's a little less than twice the height of a typical commercial flight. Cernan hit the abort button, and Snoopy's essence stage fired them back up to lunar orbit, rendezvousing with Charlie Brown, and then the final ride home. Stafford and Cernan had come 240,000 miles to stop 10 miles short of the lunar surface. Now, knowing the unbelievably motivated type of men that were willing to train for so hard and so long and to take such monumental risks, NASA had decided that the dress rehearsal would differ from the lunar landing in one tiny degree. NASA had intentionally short-fueled the upper stage of the LEM. In other words, the propellant tanks needed to get off of the surface and back into lunar orbit had been deliberately left half-empty just in case a far more emotionally justifiable mutiny might tempt Stafford and Cernan to be the ones to make history. Now, some temptations are too great for any man to bear. I come down here in a little bright crater there. It's right near the tip of the Oklahoma foothills there. Now, due to the intricacies of orbital mechanics, the crew of Apollo 10 still hold the record for being furthest from the Earth, and Tom Stafford, Gene Cernan, and John Young held and continue to hold the distinction of being the fastest humans to ever live. On May 26, 1969, on the way back to Earth, the crew of Apollo 10 set an all-time speed record of 24,791 miles per hour. Gene Cernan would get to come back to the moon and get his boots dirty. John Young would beat him to the same experience. Tom Stafford, who would ride the final Apollo capsule on the Apollo-Soyuz test project in 1975, would not be returning to the moon, but as we write this... He was the only one of the three still living. Thomas Patton Stafford, who commanded the mission that got within 10 miles of the moon, is still with us at age 88. Oh, and one final thing. Just a few days before we recorded this series in late June of 2019, something remarkable happened. You see, beginning with Apollo 11, all of the subsequent lunar module ascent stages, say for one, would be intentionally deorbited and crashed into the lunar surface to test the seismometers that the crews had left there. But since Snoopy never actually made the landing, the upper stage of the Apollo 10 lunar module was just sent off into the void. After docking, the ascent stage of the lunar module was released. Its work was finished. It glided off toward orbit around the sun a small speck of silver aluminum in perpetual orbit around the sun. It's so small and so far away that we were sure it had been lost forever. But on June 12, 2019, after eight years of diligent research, Royal Astronomical Society member Nick Howes carefully wound back the orbit of what was then thought to be a small Earth-crossing asteroid named 2018 AV2. Despite odds that he once calculated at 235 million to one, Nick Howes and his team are 98% convinced that 2018 AV2 is in fact the ascent stage of the Apollo 10 lunar module. I personally am convinced this is true, it has to be. It has to be true because the images of those sad triangular windows 
floating out there in the silent darkness for more than 50 years now is too powerful not to be true. Out there, right now, Snoopy must be out on eternal patrol, spared only because it had come so close and yet so far. Its next closest approach to Earth will occur on July 10th, 2037, when it will come within 4 million miles of the Earth, about 16 times the distance to the moon. I hope they launch a mission to visit Snoopy when she once again slowly approaches the blue planet where she was made. I hope they photograph her frosted and pitted windows. I hope they take a few samples to see what 50 years in space does to the most tightly documented materials in human history. I hope someone opens the hatch, steps inside, and shines a light around lunar module number four. And then, more than anything else, I hope they leave her exactly where she is. The last surviving piece of Project Apollo, so much more than a speck of aluminum lost in the stars. Snoopy will be in orbit forever. There's only one thing that will possibly outlast her. Certainly, it will outlast America. It will probably outlast the human race. And it might very possibly outlast all life on the charred cinder once called planet Earth as the sun comes to the end of a life that is now only middle-aged. Flags will be gone. Metals will break down. Boots may or may not walk the lunar surface again in our lifetimes or perhaps even ever at all. But up there, in a corner of the Sea of Tranquility, there's a boot print pressed deep into the timeless, airless, waterless lunar dust. And in our fourth and final episode, we're going to take you there and watch as that one small step makes a mark that will outlive all of history. Coming up in the conclusion of what we saw, hey, there's not going to be any blurry ghost light black and white images of that one small step for you steely-eyed missile people, you will get to watch Neil Armstrong take that giant leap with footage that is sharp, clear, and in living color. So did Neil Armstrong make the greatest stage entrance in history only to blow his only line? Plus, Alan Bean forgets to read the instructions and makes Apollo 12 vanish. Jim Lovell makes a deal with Alan Shepard that he would live to regret. Dave Scott high-fives Galileo on live TV. John Young returns to his favorite out-of-the-way hiking spot. And Gene Cernan could really, really use a nice hot shower. Oh, and finally, after Skylab and space shuttle missions prove that humans can live in space, will SpaceX see if the final frontier is safe for millennials? There will be tears and smiles as we say goodbye to Space Race 1. And after waiting for two whole generations, hope burns bright for Space Race 2. That's all coming up on our final part of what we saw. Apollo 11, What We Saw, is written and presented by Bill Whittle, produced by Robert Sterling, directed by Jonathan Hay, executive producer Jeremy Boring, our supervising producer is Mathis Glover, and our technical producer is Austin Stevens. Post-production producer, Alex Zingaro, story producer, Jared Sitchell, edited by Paul Matthew Gordon and Gajai, audio recorded by Mike Coromina, Audio mix by Patrick Joyner and Mike Coromina. Graphics by Cole Holloway and Anthony Gonzalez-Clark. Design by Cynthia Angulo. Production assistants, Ryan Love, Sam Thompson, and Mason Dodson. Apollo 11, What We Saw, is an esoteric radio theater production. Copyright Esoteric Radio Theater 2019.
Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Oh, 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 O'Reilly! You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts.